Welcome to Season 6 of Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Kim Farina, a veterinarian, a writer, and I've worked in the animal health care industry. And prior to that, I was an MTV journalist and a radio personality. Yes, my career has taken me in lots of different directions. Speaking of directions, in each episode of Scrub Chat, I sit down and chat with a guest so they can share their own different directions and journeys. Really what we're doing is exploring veterinary medicine combined with all the other aspects of our lives. One last thing, thank you Zoetis. Zoetis has generously created these podcasts to help support the veterinary profession. Today we get to chat with Melody Martinez, a certified veterinary technician who has her own consulting business, but I promise you, it's not what you think it is. This is going to be a great ride, I can tell you already. Welcome to the show, Melody. Thanks, Kim. Thanks for having me here. So you founded Accorde Consulting in 2017. And mm-hmm. tell us its purpose, because this is very exciting. Yeah. So um, what I do at Accorde Consulting is I'm the founder and principal consultant. And uh, mainly, I help organizations really think about and um, advance their diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. That's amazing. It's not every day that you hear that a veterinary technician leaves clinical practice. And for you, it was around like 2015. Is that right? Yes. And you pivoted to a career path dedicated to DEI. Mm -hmm. I mean, you started this journey as equity director for the Oregon Environmental Council, and then Oregon program manager for the Social Justice Fund Northwest. Talk about getting out of a rut. I mean, what was going on in your life when you decided to make this change? It was a big deal because I had been a technician, started as an assistant, but I'd been a technician for a while, almost a decade at that point. And it was such a big part of my identity. So I kind of had like this crisis moment. I remember actually being on the on the clinic floor and talking to one of my co-workers and being like, who am I if I'm not a technician, like, what does that even mean? Really what came down, it it came down to a couple of factors. One of the factors was not making enough money. That's such a big deal in our profession with with technicians and assistants. It's the reason for such big turnover. Um, So that was definitely like a contributing factor was I was, you know, kind of like, I need to be able to make more um, because I want to be able to pay my rent and, and eat and have all my basic needs met and, you know, have a little left over for some fun. Which, which I believe everyone deserves. And on top of that, um, it was a complicated situation with my workplace as well because I had uh, my CVT. So um, I got my CVT through an alternative pathway. I was actually in school thinking of becoming a veterinarian. So I was in a pre-vet program. Somewhere along the way, I decided, you know what, maybe not yet. Maybe I don't want to go to vet school yet. I think I'll be a technician. But I was already in an assistant role. And I lived in Massachusetts where um, there isn't title protection, at least currently or at that time, because I had all these college credits for like organic chemistry and physics and all these classes I was taking to prepare myself for vet school and enough clinical hours. I actually studied for the VTNE Um, over the course of maybe two years on my own. So I had a lot of hours, a lot of experience, and a lot of college credits um, in the sciences. I sat for the test and I passed, and I got licensed through that alternative pathway. 
Unfortunately, when I moved to Oregon, which is where I kind of pivoted my career, I had arrived just a month after they had stopped uh, allowing reciprocity for alternative pathway, uh, technicians that were licensed through an alternative pathway. And so the hospital I was working at was really on this kick of, you know, we gotta, we gotta have everyone here be um, licensed in the state. You know, even though I was doing all the things that all the other technicians were doing, I was called a technician. I had been hired as a, as a certified technician. The hospital was saying, you know, everyone has to be licensed in the state. Unfortunately, I missed the cutoff. I appealed to the veterinary board and they said, we're not, we're not making exceptions. So the hospital kind of put me in the situation where they said, well, you have to go back to school and get your degree. What would that entail then? Like if you... That would have entailed, you know, more student loans, yeah, uh, more time going back to school to get the technician degree on top of the degrees I already had and the fact that I had already passed the, the veterinary technician national examination. They hadn't even offered to pay for schooling either. So I was like, I'll go back to school and amass, you know, anywhere from six to $20,000 worth of student debt only to then come back and make maybe a dollar more. As the kids say these days, the math wasn't mathing. And I was like, the math doesn't make sense if I go spend all that money and then come back and and it's not going to lead to a significant pay increase. The ultimatum essentially was if I didn't go back to school and get the degree to go with the license that I already had, right. um, then I would have my pay docked. Uh um, I had no performance, like there were nothing, there was nothing wrong with my performance. In fact, they wanted to keep me on. They just wanted everyone to kind of fit into this neat little box. And this was one of the highest paying hospitals in in uh, my area. So I was like, where else do I go from here? If I can't, if I can't work here and make enough, then where else, what else is there for me to do in veterinary medicine? And at the time, you know, I thought clinical practice was all there was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of technicians and a lot of assistant support staff, they think clinical practice is all that there is. So I didn't really see a way to stay in veterinary medicine. Um, and that was, that's kind of like what I said at the beginning where I was like, I was in this crisis moment on the clinic floor talking to one of my colleagues. Um, and what she said to me in that moment really hit me. Um, and it, at the time, I, I, I didn't believe her, but eventually... I found myself realizing, oh, she was right all along. She said, you can always put this down for now and come back later. Just because you're not working in the clinic doesn't mean you're not a technician. Mm -hmm. Absolutely amazing. It's proof of this pivot mindset. Can anyone have this mindset? I think so. I think that it takes the knowledge, the awareness to know that what is happening to you right now isn't all that was or is or could be. And I think that when you're in a hard place, you can tend to forget that there's good out there, that there's possibility Mm -hmm. out there. Um, You know, humans like to stick to the negative. They like to, you know, kind of stay in that place. It's it's kind of like why why negative news media gets a lot of attention, you know, a lot of reactions, because we like to, to be in that kind of dramatic space. And I think that anyone can make this pivot. I think it just It takes a little bit of willingness to trust that there's something else out there that's possible. And sometimes, I'll be honest, I've I've made pivots now career-wise a a few times. Um, Before starting my consulting business, I worked full-time for a nonprofit. And I remember feeling a lot of trepidation of just starting my own business. Like, what if it doesn't work out? And what I realized was sometimes you don't know 
how good it's going to be until you try it. As I'm listening to you, I think, look how she's reframed her entire skill set. And I bet our listeners didn't even know you could do that. I want to dive deeper into employees and healthcare teams, for example. Yeah. Your training areas include equity-informed conflict resolution and interrupting microaggressions. Can you explain first, what are they? Yeah. So equity, I'll first start by explaining equity, which is different from equality. A lot of times when we think about diversity, equity, inclusion, or racial justice or racial equity, we're thinking from an equality mindset, which means that everyone gets the same thing. And an equity mindset is really looking at historical context. What's the context of the situation for each individual or for each community? And what does everyone need to be able to access a successful outcome? Not necessarily what does everyone need to succeed? Mm -hmm. It's what does everyone need to kind of level the playing field, right? So I like to explain this within veterinary medicine or with healthcare teams. Um, If a company says that they're going to buy, have a scrub allowance for everyone and they're going to order scrubs for everyone, but everyone's going to get medium unisex sized scrubs. That's it. Everyone, no matter what your body size you are going to get medium scrubs because it's we want everyone to be equal. And so everyone's going to get the same size, right? That's where you can see equality actually falls apart as a framework to create a more just system. With equity, we would actually think about, well, what does every single individual need, right? Some people will need smalls, others will need large, extra small, extra large, 2XL, whatever, right? What do people need in order to be able to do their job? right? What size scrub? So we're thinking about what do people need in order to access, have the same level of ability to succeed or have at least the same access to that success. And in some cases, it's it goes beyond that. It's not, well, I'm not going to order the scrubs for you. I'll let you order. You can pick your color, your style, your size, your manufacturer. You know, it's really thinking about how do we put kind of the, the power to decide back in the hands of the people who are most impacted by whatever the outcome is. And so really thinking about equity, it's about thinking about individuals. It's thinking about individual groups or communities. Um, And when we're thinking about racial equity, we're thinking about what do black, indigenous, and people of color need based on historical context, based on systemic issues like systemic racism? What are the barriers in the way to achieving that success, that access to success or that access to opportunity? Um, And how do we remove some of those barriers so that we can kind of, we can essentially equalize the playing field? So equity is a way to get closer to that equality that we're all talking about and that Mm -hmm. justice that we're all talking about. And so microaggressions, on the other hand, are a form of interpersonal racism. And by interpersonal racism, I mean racism that happens between individuals. And that's sort of the slights, the comments. Um, they're not, they don't necessarily have to be like uh, slurs, um, like very overt forms of racism that we, we understand exist. They can be things like in veterinary colleges, uh, a black student being in the lab And a professor saying, oh, do you go to school here? What school do you go to? Like not assuming that that student is a veterinary student at that school, right? Right. Or um, being in a store and someone assuming that you work there and -hmm. you're like, I don't, I don't work here. (laughs) Um, So microaggressions can take lots of forms. They can, they can be gendered. Uh, There's a lot of microaggressions and stereotypes and biases, for example, of uh, women not being as good 
at math um, than men. Um, and there are racial microaggressions, uh, which is mostly what I work and address, as well as all different kinds of you know, microaggressions that relate to multiple layers of identity. Oftentimes I get called in because uh, companies really want to start living their values. They want, they say to me, you know, we're trying to do this diversity, equity, and inclusion work. We understand that our employees are not very diverse racially or ethnically. Um, and we'd like to address that. We'd like to attract more diverse staff members. We'd like to hire them. We'd like to have a culture that really embraces diversity, makes people feel included, and really practices the, the foundations of equity. They might say, we've gotten started, but we've hit like a stopping, a stuck point, or we're having conflict. I go in and I essentially help those kind of assess the situation and then come up with some recommendations and help that organization get closer to their goals. It's, it's not usually like a like a surgical fix where it's like, well, we did a few trainings and we, you know, fixed a few of your policies and processes and we were done. It's usually uh, a long-term process. It's an investment over time mm -hmm. and usually I'm one piece I'm one piece of that puzzle, one part of that puzzle helping them get there. Um, I've I've worked with universities, like deans of universities, coaching them essentially on kind of the things that they're missing when it comes to, they, they have their own life experience, their own professional experience, and they might call and say, you know, we're really trying to work on diversity, equity, and inclusion. We're working on addressing racism in our policies and our practices and norms. Um, and they might realize I need, I need help doing this because I, I'm, you know, a white woman who has a lot of, you know, professional, collegiate, academic experience. I don't have a lot of experience living in the body of someone who has faced discrimination because of their race um, or barriers um, because they, you know, grew up working class or something like that. So they'll call me and say, you know, I'd love some coaching on some of the conflicts that are coming up between my staff around these things, things that I'm doing to figure out how I might how I might be the ally that I want to be. Usually they're very big projects. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I mean, aren't you just super busy? Because isn't this present in like every practice and every company? Yes. <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. I'm a waiting list right now for a few months. But yes, um, you know, it's interesting because when I left vet med clinical practice, I went into nonprofit work. And then the nonprofit sphere, um, especially where social services, human services are being considered, that is where a lot of this work is happening. But it's also happening at the government agency level. So I've worked with a lot of um, city governments, uh, state governments as well, who are thinking about, you know, uh, trying to, you know, have more equitable outcomes in the way that they offer services to to the public or in the way that they, you know, think about who they hire, who they retain, who they promote, um, how those things are done, what board members they bring in. Do, do the board members all kind of come from the same backgrounds? Um, one of the things about racial diversity and many forms of diversity, but racial diversity in particular, is that when you have a group that is um, more racially diverse, it actually lends itself better to innovation, to thinking of things that that group might not have thought of um, because that person or those people weren't in the room to bring that lived experience into that space. Um, so 
it, it is definitely keeps me busy, just like in vet med. What I really love about it is that it's dynamic. That, you know, in vet med, you might see a, a million ear infections in a week, but every client and every patient is a little bit different, right? And so I think even though I see a lot of the same dynamics, I'm called in for a lot of the same issues, every client is a little bit different. They're at a different place in their journey. And so what I really love about it is that it's just as dynamic as vet med because it's not the same thing all the time, you right. know? Um, right. We're almost out of time and I'm, I'm seeing something here because you said, you know, a pivot is a break, not a divorce. And I almost feel like the companies you work with and the people you work with are actually pivoting all the time. Like a pivot is a growth opportunity or a transformation or a something more, because I feel like all these companies you're working with are in fact pivoting Yes, from what they were, right? Yes, yes, definitely. The companies are essentially saying, we want to grow in a certain area. How do we do that? And how can you help us? Um, and I think that part of my own experience in that, in taking those shifts, um, actually has allowed me to be able to support other companies, other individuals, leadership of organizations, um, staff of organizations to say like this, the change can happen and it will happen as long as you're invested in it. Um, and you're willing action, action really is about that willingness to maybe mess up, make a mistake and either reframe it or, um, you know, um, learn from it. I always tell people, it's like one of my, my mottos, my isms that I always say, I say, you know, you only learn how to ride a bike by falling off the bike. And sometimes you're only going to learn if something wasn't for you by trying it, or if something was for you by trying it. We have a lot of perfectionism in the veterinary field and I'm definitely, and, and with good reason, you know, <laughs> in, in any medical field, but we're also human. And I think that making mistakes, making errors is a part of how you learn and how you grow. And so I'm always hopeful that people will see my errors as opportunities for growth. And I see other people's errors, companies, organizations, I see their missteps and their conflicts as opportunities to learn how to do better how to grow. And, you know, speaking to that, it's a break and not a divorce. I mean, for me, I think I needed from a well-being perspective and, and, you know, finances are part of well-being. Like if you feel like you you can't make it on what you're, what you're making, that, that can contribute to, you know, low well-being scores, no wellness scores, no low mood and lots of anxiety. And I think for me, leaving clinical practice was such a, at first I felt like it was, I was doing so begrudgingly. And then I felt really kind of liberated by, because the opportunities that came next were so expansive and allowed me to grow. So to see a whole other career, to see a whole other way of doing things to, to connect, to learn new skills um, that, you know, in vet med, it was always on, on the clinic floor. It was always kind of those hard skills, those soft skills, clinic floor. I really wanted to think about what would it be like to support people? And, and one of those driving factors too, was that I was intimately aware of how many people were coming in, especially in an ER setting and not being able to afford the care 
that their animals needed. And what I noticed in my particular city was that oftentimes those folks who came in and whose animals were in dire straits and they couldn't afford it all kind of had something in common. They were experiencing homelessness. They were people of color in some cases, not always, but in many cases, uh, more often than not likely to be people of color, more often than not clearly uh, poor working class. Um, and it really irked me. You know, I was like, here I am providing the service that I think every animal deserves, every family deserves to stay together, um, to go to the lengths that we do for people if we can to save their animals. And there are some people who are not, do not have access to that care in the same way that others do. And that really, that kind of injustice within our fields that I saw was like, and it wasn't just particular to this one hospital either. I want to make sure that that's clear. It wasn't particular to this one hospital. I was just kind of like, wow, if people can't afford to eat and if they can't afford shelter, how can they afford to pay for life-saving surgery on their animal, on their family member? And so I really wanted to think about how do I, how do I help get people, people's basic needs met so that it produces better outcomes for their animal family members? and for them to stay together with that animal. And so that really propelled me into like the social justice space, the nonprofit space, the human, supporting humans. I learned so much, I grew so much. And I think ultimately what happened was that I was able to make enough money, essentially, working outside of veterinary medicine as not a technician, that I was actually able to go back into veterinary medicine on a relief basis, on a volunteer basis. Um, I volunteer at a free clinic that serves people um, experiencing homelessness or who are very, um, very, very low income or no income um, with animals, trying to keep those animals together with their people, um, which I, I truly adore. Um, it's called Portland Animal Welfare Team. I truly adore them and I adore the work that they do. Um, and as well as with the Multicultural Veterinary Medical Association, which is addressing those issues of racism and um, a diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging in veterinary medicine, trying to shift and pivot the 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 industry, the field itself, so that it it can have the it can benefit from the voices and experiences of what our culture, what our society actually looks like. You know. Yes. Yes. I couldn't agree with you more. Oh my gosh. Yes. Unfortunately. We're out of time. I hate when this happens. Maybe you'd come back again. Would I would love to. Because <laughs> I feel like we have scratched the surface of so many good things. And I just want to thank you for joining us today because I, I feel like like we've con we could have gone like six more hours at least. <laughs> thank you so much. I, I really loved being here. I really appreciate your great questions. And um, I just want to thank you and Zoetis for, for making this possible. Thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you. Well, this wraps up another episode of Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email at scrubchat at zoetis.com. And please don't forget to share and review this podcast so we can produce more in the future. We are grateful to Zoetis for the support. 
I'm Dr. Kim Farina. See you on the flip side. This is Scrub Chat.